It's not that we know how to listen to people. It's that we like to listen to people. We like to listen to every single word and dissect. We're, we just love to dissect things. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Mari Nakano is a pioneering social impact designer at the forefront of her profession. She was recently named deputy director of the service design studio for the New York City Mayor's Office for Economic Opportunity. Previously, she spent four years as the design and interaction lead for UNICEF's Office of Innovation, with a focus on finding solutions for children around the world whose lives are in turmoil. Today, we trace Mari's journey from her childhood household of makers to her trailblazing career in the emerging field of social innovation, and we are treated to stories of her tireless work on behalf of at-risk populations near and far. Learn where she draws her inspiration and how she hopes to deploy her problem-solving tactics closer to home to address local issues facing underserved communities in New York City. Okay, so I'm interested in a lot of issues, but along the way, it's really interesting and important to try to understand who you are as a human being, who you are as a person, and Mm -hmm. in that spirit to look back to young Mari, to childhood Mari, um, with very kind of specific interest in, you know, who, who were you as a creative person as a very young kid? What was that about? What were the influences? How did you detect in yourself that there was a creative spirit that mm. maybe you loved or maybe you were curious about or maybe you just wanted to play with a little bit? Who was that child? Yeah. Um, I I grew up in San Francisco, and I think when when I think about my childhood, I think about my my backyard we had this old pear tree, and I'd love to climb it all the time and just find a branch I could sit in or find a corner of the fence just so I could just sit and just kind of be above things and, and look down and feel like I was, you know, somewhere safe or in the sky. I was always like that. Um, and I also had a dad who was always very DIY around the house. He was, he, professionally, he was a, a Japanese sushi chef. Um, but he was always just somebody who was fixing and making things. So he'd cook in the day or, you know, cook in the evening, but he'd also, you know, be fixing, fixing the door and fixing, you know, just fixing anything that kind of was off in the house all the time. And, and he'd teach me, you know, like he'd... So he'd what, bring you along and he'd bring show me along you. And... Or, you know, I'd hang out, I'd just hang out and watch him. I just was really curious to watch him, like, fix the car he had um we had a ping pong table and um, one of the ping pong balls was dented once, and he's I was like oh what do we do how do you fix that you know and he goes come here and he just brings me over to the furnace and he turns the hot water on into a bucket and he was watching he threw he throws a ping pong ball in there and because of the heat it popped back uh, into shape uh, and uh-huh. I was like oh my gosh that's fascinating but how do you know he just always knew how to solve problems. 
Um, and I didn't know where he was like getting those answers, but I just, he was my, like, he was my Google, I guess, my Google.com person. I would search through him. Um, and I just grew up around a creative family. You know, I really consider my dad an artist. Um, my mom was like a secret artist. She, she helped run the restaurant, but whenever it came down to helping me with, um, homework, especially like science and art projects, she would help me, you know, sketch things out beautifully. And I, she could sew, she would make like these Japanese dolls with intricate kimonos on them. And just the, just these things were around me all the time. Um, and so my brother and I kind of. So you were born into a world of skillful people, capable people who did things. Yeah. My dad was very artistic in that sense. And he encouraged me to be artistic. And then my, my mother was always, extremely like the cheerleader for me she's like you can do anything you want but she was also very you know disciplining and because of all that kind of combination of things I I was and because I think I naturally also was a type of person to really put a lot of pressure on myself to excel all of that combination of stuff like really just made me I guess who I am right now so circling back, just to make sure, it wasn't like uh, the creative or artistic life or the fixing life or the skillful making kind of life was uh, off into some corner or sectioned off somehow or compartmentalized. It was part of the world, you, the air you breathed. Really. Mm-hmm. Is that there for you today? Does that feel like you now in your work, that kind of integration and that kind of lack of blurred lines in terms of your creative life? Absolutely. Um, You know, I think that even though I might have a nine to five, I think as a creative, as as someone, you know, as a designer, it it doesn't stop. It's not five thirty, six o'clock p.m., you know, when and you're like, I'm done. I'm done thinking. I'm done making you get on the train and you think, well, what's next? You know, when I go home. What, what what problems do I need to solve when I get home? Um, and I think now that I have a three-year-old daughter, I spend a lot of time trying to instill creativity in, into her life. And so I'm always trying to engage with her on that and also just kind of present, like, what did I learn? You know, how did, how did I learn? And so I could, you know, become creative and make my own stories and narratives. So I just, when I go home, she's like, She's there for me to, like, do that with, you know? Right. Can you look at raising a child as a designer? Do you approach, can you take, quote-unquote, design thinking to child-rearing? Oh, can, yeah, totally. Do, do you? Has it I worked? do. I, it's, I think it's a lot about, it's a, I think design thinking and research and those kinds of things are a lot about asking questions in the right way. And I think children are really good at training actually maybe there should be a class on design thinking Mm -hmm. um, with children and kind of how do you extrapolate information from a young child you know um, you can't you have to communicate differently I think I've learned a lot about how to ask her questions in a way that she can understand I I think if anything it's maybe helped me in my career you know and taking that back to work I guess my first real job really out of college was working as a youth services coordinator in Little Tokyo. So, you know, I I got trained in that way to work with kids and to work in the community. Um, And the activism was 
huge part of that right. work, right, yeah. at that time. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and to just really integrate that into everything I was doing, um, especially with kids. But that's kind of, I guess, where it segues was, you know, I was a youth service coordinator at a place called Little Tokyo Service Center Community Development Corporation in, in Los, downtown Los Angeles. And, you know, I was doing a lot of work trying to coordinate their after-school program, the Saturday classes, um, or the Saturday kind of programs, and um, a lot of just sort of the family services that were happening um, in some of the housing that we were um, uh, in charge of. But a lot of the kids would come up to me uh, most of the time and say, Mari, I just, I, I want to learn photography. Um, I want to, I love graffiti and I want to know how to, like, I, I want to know what else to do with it. Um, I don't know how to write a resume. I don't know what to wear for um, a job interview. How can you help me? You know, and, and then I started realizing that a lot of these things um, could use design, could use someone that had that sort of creative thinking to help them um, kind of solve those problems or, or just, just achieve something that they were seeking that they couldn't find. Their their resources mm-hmm. weren't available mm-hmm. for them. So I started really reaching out to different artists that I had been connected to, like muralists and poets, and having them come in and really work with those kids. And then I saw myself as a bridge, but then I thought, well, could I do that myself? And so I made this choice to go back to school. I said, well, I, I want to study. I want to teach designed to these kids and so that's kind of at the moment that was the moment I said well I guess you know I'm going to go to art center and that's when I applied um and and kind of decided to depart from that for a little while and why why for you the call for design why why that particular way of going about it at that time Mm -hmm. from what you knew then right I think um that then ties back to like my childhood and my life growing up i that was that was something that i felt was me you know um for there were moments i thought well maybe i should go to law school and you know be a yeah, civil rights we've all attorney been there, yeah. right I, th- I mean i thought about that or i thought about going into like holistic medicine and and starting mm. a clinic and mm-hmm. i you know i really mm-hmm. thought about all these different angles and um at the end of the day the kind of that creative space for me was something I felt like very natural in. And so I thought I, I can blend this and my love for, you know, my love for design and my desire to like really be someone that can move the social impact space. You know, um, I can blend those things together. But I'm, I'm interested in, in how you think about the design imagination and design work as fundamentally connected to making change in the world. I'd love your reflections on what that means to you. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess I just, I see so many objects and products, technologies and, and these fast ideas out there these days. And I think, um, you know, we live in a fast-paced world and everybody's trying to solve problems and make these sort of exponential impacts, you know, um, and sell that too. But I I think where I've found um, kind of my sort of happy space with creativity is, is before all of that. Um, when I, when, especially at UNICEF where I'm working right now, when a problem comes to us, 
all the designers want to take take a breath and take a step back and say, well, why why do we need this and and who's who's it for? Are we talking to the people that that we need to solve you know solve for solve this problem for? And we're we just get really curious, you know. And I think um, designers are creatives are just naturally one really empathetic, um, but they're they're extremely detailed about um, and intricate about wanting to know why we should do things. And what is it about the designer that can affect change or be able to have impact in a way that, say, a social worker necessarily couldn't? Or not? To, I mean, social workers are wonderful. Mm-hmm. Or uh, another kind of activist or involved um, mm-hmm. in a certain kind of situation. And, and I, I mean, we can generalize about that, but I'm really interested in it for you, for right. Mari. What is it that that you think is is there that allows that allows the designer to do something that nobody else can do? I think we, we, it's not that we know how to listen to people. Um, it's that we like to listen to people. I think we like to listen to every single word and dissect, or we just love to dissect things. So they're really good at knowing um, what to include and exclude. They like to build, designers like to invent and build new doors. So moving on, tell us about your work now with, with UNICEF and, and what, what it is to be the, um, the lead visual designer at the UNICEF Innovation Unit. So uh, maybe a little bit about the Innovation Unit itself and then what, what the team you're leading and what your purpose is there. Sure. Um, so UNICEF Innovation Team has been around for less than a decade, um, and it's comprised of mostly... 40 and under a mix of people um, from all different types of disciplines, data scientists and engineers, developers, designers, folks in development, of course. Um, We have an innovation fund. We also have a couple specialists who are really just trying to, to really just kind of push the boundaries of what UNICEF had to offer. Um, I think the thing is like UNICEF's mission is, you know, to help vulnerable children around the world. Right. Um, and we, they're experts, UNICEF's experts at how to, how to handle that, how to do that. Um, but in a, in a day like today where we've got all these new technologies, we're really looking at how, how can we pivot those new ideas, those new technologies and designs? How can we pivot those, or, you know, organizations and companies um, to really look at UNICEF and say, well, what, what can we do for children, you know, and Instead of just having a drone that's gonna go and just you know take you, that you can buy you know on on Amazon for really cheap and just you know take a lot of really cool angles of your wedding or something like that, we're we're saying, well, how might a drone be able to you know deliver um, blood samples you know within a matter of hours to get tested for HIV and AIDS for a newborn child? Um, how might we be able to use that um, right after a, a landslide or an earthquake to really go and scan an environment mm-hmm. to make sure that there's nobody that's you know that needs help? Um, and how do we talk to those types of businesses and say, 
we we need you, but we also need you to like really look at your own business model and and talk about and and understand that doing good is good business. And, and do you do you know historically who had this idea, who had the vision to bring an innovation unit into a place like UNICEF? I think there's a there's there's a small handful of of people that really tried to pull the innovation unit together. Uh, you know, one is Christopher Fabian right. and Erica Kochi, they're the co-leads, um, co-founders, and Sharad Sapra, who, you know, we call him uh, the grandfather of innovation. Um, those guys were probably the, really the the pioneers for really putting in an in innovation team and experiment and taking that risk. Were to they have already that. there, or were they brought in to do it? You know, they were already there, uh-huh. um, and they came from that sort of UNICEF development perspective first, I guess. I see. Um, I see. So they didn't come in as like innovators or, you know, right. That some leader had this idea. We're going to bring in an innovation right. team. They, and, they were already uh, present, and uh-huh. that's and the so thing. it grew organically. And yeah, grew, and, yeah, uh-huh. and I think. All also, the thing is, you know, what we realized too by having this unit is that there's a ton of other UNICEF colleagues out there who have amazing ideas. You know, they're trained in a development space or a more traditional type of background. Um, and so what we're trying to do is also kind of carve out space for them to present their ideas um, using the Innovation Fund, for example, or just being you know, purely networked into our country offices and say, hey, this is a space you can come and share your kind of off off hour ideas. And, and let's see how we can integrate that back into UNICEF and the work that we do. These big clunky organizations, sort of old school organizations, they don't have room for risk, you know, and, and so um, people are afraid there. And so it, we're really trying to kind of bring that mentality into an organization like this to say Let, let's try let's see what we can do and prom- we promise we can do bigger and better things you know on top of the the things that we're already doing for the world so i want to get to what you do there but you've you've just you've set it up so well give us a story of of uh or uh, an example of what the innovation unit has done that is really i mean you were referencing drones maybe that's one of them but what's been done that without the innovation unit we would never have uh, UNICEF would never have been able to do or have imagined I think I could take I'll take this opportunity to say you know, I'm not going to talk about products specifically because you can read that on the internet on our blog um, but I would say that the innovation team has taken a risk big risk in in that I think they really pioneered putting design into the organization and integrating it. Um, you don't see where UNICEF Innovation is probably the first sort of UN team that's um, built in design and designers into their team. When a developer has a new idea, we can sit with them and help them visualize what they're trying to to put out there in the world. Really, in that sense, we've become advocates in a lot of ways for other divisions to really start to to have them start thinking about how they might be able to build design or a design team maybe into their division or beautiful yeah okay so now circling back to you so what does the lead visual designer do you um (laughs) i'm interested in how you you know what you do how you work who you are as a leader in that group what you set up for your team and the people you work with. What do you bring? Oh, boy. Um, I think 
There's a couple things, I guess. Um, one is that I think um, we really somehow defaulted to us being a lot, this sort of ad hoc HR. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's that it's sort of that people knowing thing that we, that the creative people have on uh, our team. We, uh-huh. we care so much about who comes on board and making sure that they have the answers to all their problems, you know, um, for their administrative issues. Um, I've, in a lot of ways become sort of one of the people that you know the rest of the team will come to for just advice or you know just to shoot some ideas off of you know and find some direction but i think also because design has design plays a role in every project that we have my job is a lot to um really find synergies between the projects um, because, you know, we have different teams that may be siloed into a specific project, but because design is in all those things, and I, I, I'm basically managing 20-plus um, projects, big and small, at the same time, I really have to look at how do I streamline what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, how do I source out the right designers to the right projects at, at the right time, and can I look at one project and say there's a lot of overlapping relationships with this particular project and this other one in another country, perhaps? So there's a lot of this sort of kind of phone operator thing going on where I'm really trying to connect all these different pieces um, and and really try to strengthen or emphasize what we do so it's not redundant. Have you paid particularly um, close attention to the space that you build for your team? Is it a space that echoes the the creative kind of uh, fascination with fixing that you had from the earliest days of your life. What is that space? What's that space like that you've created for the team? We just we just really try to set up a more dynamic um, working environment first off. That and that's really helped us ideate and share things quicker. Um, I think also from a design perspective, we're, we really are looking at well. Ju- it's it's almost like um it's almost like a portfolio class in a way we are really trying to set up the space in a way that if you have an idea you can pin it on the wall for you know whatever it's worth if it's just in an early stage as or if it has something to do with the major project or maybe nothing to do with the project at all the designers have been trained from the beginning to use post-its and just kind of put everything out there where we're comfortable with our vulnerability, you know, being vulnerable in our process. Mm. And so because the other team members who have not come maybe from a creative space, they, they see that from us and we've made it friendly for them, I suppose. You start seeing this kind of really weird creative osmosis happening. And so a lot of the other team members are now like post, you know, oops, using post-its and starting to put things out on whiteboards or pinning things up and you know, opening up their brain and putting that out on the wall for us to just really share and talk and dialogue with each other. And so I've seen that happen in the last few years. And, and it's just, it's, it's really, it's really fun. See, it, I, f- I find that kind of thing incredibly exciting. I mean, just the kind of physical space that you as a leader of that team have built for them to be able to thrive and be able to do the things that you want. Um, that to me is so, is so resonant and exciting. I'll, I'll, I'll share with you for a minute that I think a lot about that in terms of, as the president of a college, in terms of curriculum, because we are so, as as uh, administrators and faculty, so passionate about wanting our students to 
know all these things. And what we do in that process is we make requirements. And requirements do are ne a necessary part to a certain degree of mm -hmm. any kind of education curriculum. And it comes from a great place in faculty. I don't mean that. But mm -hmm. is it really the most creative way to work? Mm -hmm. As opposed to the concept that you've articulated, a, a, a greater open space. But when you, you overload it too much, then you begin or cubicle it too much or requirement it too much. You, you, you start countering the very kind of creativity and open spirit and learning that you're trying to learn. So yep. it becomes an interesting design problem to think about a curriculum ironically, yeah. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That lets the breeze blow through it a little bit where there's a confidence that there will be discoveries. There will be moments of finding the sacred and the mon mundane that will put a post up on that students will find that doesn't always have to be governed and mm -hmm. structured in that way. Does that mm -hmm. resonate with how you, how yeah, you work? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of being a creative is being okay not knowing also, you know, and, and when... You know, we're kind of in this day and age where everybody's always asking you to know everything. And, and that's, you know, technology is always like, you know, you have to Google everything. So you just know you so you can be like, I know this. I know this statistic. I read this, you know, and and I think it's we're doing less of saying I, I actually don't know. Could you teach me, you know, and um, when when we're able to ask those type of vulnerable questions, um that's when the experts can come and say, I need to actually, I'm going to explain myself and what I know a little bit differently so the everyday person can better understand what I'm doing. And I think we need, we, we need that space, right? It, in, in Japan, there's this thing called ma, it, which is space, which means space and, and silence. And, and that is just as important in, in any structure or narrative space as, as there is chaos and sound. Absolutely, absolutely. And at some other point, you and I should talk about this in terms of how we educate people, because yeah. I think it's, it's very, very meaningful. So you made reference earlier to um, the Innovation Fund mm -hmm. um, at UNICEF, and uh, I'd, li I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about it. Um, what is it? Why a VC model for what needs to be done? Um, and are there you know, ways in which are stories that you can tell us about that project that, that, that you think are important for us to know? Why we chose a VC model was because I think a few things was one, you know, we really, we really understood that there were people in the tech space, both in private and, and within the NGO type of space who, who had great ideas, but not aware that maybe those ideas actually could work in um, a UNICEF type of mission-driven space. And so we are, a lot of the folks that we're investing in, um, they have pretty um, rigid requirements when they do apply. You know, it, it can't just be, well, what's your cool, what's your cool app that you're doing? They, all the, all the things, all the products that are being invested in, they, they have to follow the principles of innovation. You know, design, do, does this, does this product do no harm? Are you designing with the user? You know, a lot of these sort of design principles, right? Um, and so we have to really put them through that rigor and say, are you following these types of things? And then really see the potential of what they're doing and, and work really closely with a lot of these companies 
to really build up their product in a way that is 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 a really actual do good product at the end of the day. And so it's we're in a real we're actually really experimenting I think in a lot of ways with the fund. Is um, there worry at all between the the profit motive associated with the for profit with a with a business versus working with a an NGO or a non other nonprofits where you know the goals of and mission is very different? Yeah, I mean that that's a big question that a lot of these companies have is like how much am I going to make off of this, you know? And I think um we're really pushing that well, there, there's a whole business in doing good, and you might not make as much money off of this idea if had you got it invested in, in a sort of private sector space. But the the sort of it, the impact that you have with the work that you're doing, and the fact that we're asking you to open source your work, um, has unimaginable possibilities. You have to, and you have to trust us with that. And I think that when you think about so, for the example the statistic of there being over 3 billion people without the internet right now, you know, in this world. Like for us, that's uh, um, unbelievable. But when you really realize, when you realize that there's that many people in the world right now who don't have access to internet, therefore they don't have access to information. When you can bring new ideas and products and services to them, you know, from, from the baseline fiber optics to sort of these, you know, low bandwidth type of apps or tech products, um, you have a whole untouched space. That but, you, and maybe you know, that example is a great way of answering my question, that yeah. there are certain certain kinds of projects, certain kinds of jobs that maybe are more appropriate for a business-oriented enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you know when you're doing good? Um, you know, the world is kind of gray and ambiguous, and, and I'm just wondering how you deal with that, how you deal with the sense of knowing that you're making a difference for something that, that is good and how you look at that. That's hard. That's hard. That's really hard to answer. Um, I do know one sort of part of all of that, that knowing is, is simply like my own intuition. I think the other thing is, um, it's it's a lot in retrospect. I look at a lot of the work that I've done, and I look at it two years after I've done it, three years after I've done it, or whatever. And and I see that, you know, the hand that I had in it has a mark has been left. Uh, for example, you know, uh, when I was a youth service coordinator for Little Tokyo Service Center, one of the things that I did was help coordinate a street basketball tournament for kids um, every year. And um, and why we did that was because we Little Tokyo had always wanted a recreation center built in the community, and it had never been achieved. And so as our sort of protest, in a way, we organized um, an outdoor street basketball tournament, and we would attract over 200 kids to this thing over the weekend. So I was, you know, organizing that tournament, advocating for this recreation center, and that was probably when, you know, a decade ago or so, um, and now I'm getting emails that we're investing in a recreation center and we're fund we're fundraising. We actually have a building for it, and we have all these programs and services that we're going to be implementing. and And to see that come into fruition, you're like, okay, I was on a path. I was on the right path then, and I knew it. I knew it at the time, you know. And um, so, 
so it's a little bit of that proof later on, I think. Um, and I think that's a that's a kind of conundrum I have as a designer in general is that um, design takes time and results in in a creative space often take time. And um, asking for someone to trust you and say, I'll show these results will come in a few years is is the hardest thing to advocate for. Because people want to know right away that you can prove that the thing that you're doing will show is is showing results now, you know. And so, um, I'm trying to kind of figure out that, figure that out in general in the work that I do. Um, but I think kind of going back to try to answer your question about how do I know that I'm doing the right thing is 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 that I have to specify what I want to do. Um, I think. Um, one of the big things is that I, for whatever reason, I, I really love advocating for youth. Um, I think in a lot of the work that I do, it's always kind of been geared towards young people. So before I even went back to art school, it was always, you know, being a youth service coordinator or being a tutor or something like that, um, teaching young kids art and photography. Um, and then UNICEF is all about children, mm-hmm. and so I'm I'm super passionate about that. And now, do you know why? Is there a right. special way that you connect with youth, uh, connect with young people in the world that touches you in a particular way that you would talk about? Um, I feel like since I was young, um, I used to like even you know help. Do, you know, I was like a leader at summer camp and did basketball coaching for young kids, all that stuff um, since I was like in eighth grade, I think. But um, I think what I really enjoy about working with youth is that, um, yeah, actually the vulnerability because they don't, a lot of them, they're just trying to figure out what they want to do with themselves mm-hmm. still. and. Mm-hmm. They want to find people that they can trust in to kind of disclose that they don't know what they're doing, you know. And I, I like being the person to be trusted in, you know. I, I really enjoy having people trust in me to help them, you know, in that sense, I guess, or to support them somehow. And so I naturally gravitate towards working with youth. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something so raw and... Um, open about about working with them. Um, it's not about breaking down like all these um, types of you know ideas that they have developed. It's it's about just fostering new ones to go on top of their curiosity. And I think that's what I really love about young people. Uh, whereas working with adults, it's a lot about kind of breaking down the kind blocks. of barriers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a lot about that and like. Sure, I can do that, you know, but I prefer the other way around of having more of like that sort of um, open kind of palette. And I personally feel like it helps just me be a better person because I can understand and and learn and remain sensitive to people. And I think that's a huge value for a designer is to be able to remain sensitive. And that's a sensitivity that you learn from kids, really. Yeah. 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 And so they remind me a lot, you know, they remind me a lot to stay that way. Yeah. Is there something in your life that you were certain about and now you've changed your mind on and you look at it in a completely different way? I don't, I don't know if I was ever certain about anything in my life. Um, And I think I think I learned that 
early on because, you know, I lost my dad when I was just um, entering college. Mm. And um, I, at that moment, I knew that, like, sort of that traditional family, mom, dad, and sibling kind of life wasn't going to happen for me. You know, and I think that was kind of maybe the first expectation I had about life in general was that you just kind of, you have your family to, and and your parents die when they're old and, and you have your career and you get married and you get a house and all those sort of those steps, you know. And I I think at a young age, I assumed that. And, and when I lost my father, I knew it's not going to be that way for me. So how am I going to survive? You know, how am I going to do this life thing? You know, and... From then on, I started to really prepare and see that every choice that I was going to make wasn't necessarily going to lead to some expected end. And in design, in my career, to actually the choice to even be a designer and to go to art center was not planned. You know, I like I said, I, I grew up just really focused in the traditional academic world, and design came quite late. I guess, you know, for me. And so that was not even expected. And even in my career now, I I could I don't think if if we go back to Art Center, I don't think I could have told you I would be where I am today. Um I really believe in uncertainty. Like I'm okay with it. I'm I'm mm. really comfortable with it. Mm. Um I, I am very much a planner. And I'm a stickler for a lot of, you know, very Big organizer, things. too, I read. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I do. I, I'm There's that part of me that needs to be really organized and clean and, you know, straight lines and tight schedules and stuff like that. But the, it's like this yin-yang side of there's this total other side of me that's like, it's okay. You know, I can go with the flow and just and I, I need that, too, to really balance me out. I have, hadn't planned to ask this question, but you, 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 you sort of many things that you've said today um, intrigue me, and I, I, I have a personal fascination about the notion that we can know certain things only through making them, mm-hmm. and that there are analytical ways of knowing, and there are all kinds of ways of knowing, but making is one way of knowing. And it sounds to me, unless I'm projecting here a lot, and please be honest, that, that that's. So that's that's relevant to you. That's pertinent to who you are as a designer, but also how you're living your life. Yeah, you know, I know how to plan ahead, right? I <laughs> I can that that's why I can do my job. But I really I really believe in you know putting the bricks and mortar down to build your own path and direction too. And I think that. You never, you just don't know when you're going to come across a barrier in your life. And you, you know, you can plan ahead all you want, but you, you've got to be in the present as well as the future at the same time. Um, if you're going to, if you want to do it, you know, and I think making things is like, it, it reminds me of just like archaeologists discovering dinosaurs and, you know, rebuilding skeletons and things like that. You, you don't know what you're getting yourself into, but the you spend all this time investing and piecing every bone together and you make this enormous skeleton and then from there can rebuild and skin it and make a story around it, what it ate, who its predators were, you know, 
um, what happened to it? Why doesn't it exist anymore? That type of energy is 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 very much how I look at at life too. And I think we have to trust ourselves a lot more as human beings and and be and really be in touch with our intuition. Um, I mean, that's that's what we used to. That's what people do all the time. Like, you know, without if we didn't have weather apps and all these things, you know, like. What, what would we turn to? The sky, mm-hmm. maybe. You have to stick your head out the window yeah, to find yeah, out if exactly, it's raining. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. people who are a lot more in touch with like nature and things like that, who can, who have a better sense of their senses in general, those people can trust themselves a lot more for what they should and the choices that they make next. You know, and I think we need to, we need to really kind of make sure that as much as we're practicing all these new techniques and things to to make beautiful and wonderful thing objects and products um we also have to like really kind of go back and understand how ourselves as human beings and like you know trust that intuition um be smart about it of course but but really trust that's part of the sort of chemistry of of who we are and i think um creative people tap into that really well um, and that's why they they are creative because they're willing to be vulnerable and tap into that part and and somehow really bring that back into the work that they that they're doing today. So it's been uh, it's been several months since we when, since we spoke, and in the intervening time, you um, you have a new position as uh, deputy director of design and product with the New York City Mayor's Office, right? Right. Since I've got on board, since we've kind of corrected that to the deputy director for the service design studio. What is the service design studio? (laughs) So the service design studio for uh, New York City um, under the Mayor's Office of Economic Opportunity is the first municipal um, service design studio um, that's supporting low-income and middle-income New Yorkers. It's the nation's first. Uh, So we are a small team of um, designers who are sitting inside the government and um, really trying to infuse and bring service design to um, New York City government agencies so they can do a better job of deploying their projects and servicing New Yorkers. Is there a way that you can describe in a minute or two? I understand this is our time is limited here, but can you describe for us some specific ways in which that is transpiring? Sure. Um, so I'm only about a little over two months in, so I'll try my best to describe what we're doing as much as possible. But for the service design studio, well, for, for our whole design product team in general, um, we own uh, two products. Um, one is called Access NYC, which is a um, online um, benefits screener. So what that does is allow New Yorkers go online and basically figure out what type of city services and benefits they're eligible for. Um, And that includes everything from, you know, discovering if you're eligible for uh, food stamps to um, education services for your child to uh, New York ID, um, those kind of things. And that just lets that allows like a New Yorker to really get get an overview of, um, 
things that they can access that they might normally not know that those services exist. Mm-hmm. Also, we're testing it out for people who are um, doing canvassing and going out in the fields, uh, other service social workers and service providers who are working with the public to help y- use the platform to help them screen people that they're um, coming across when they're doing their social services. Uh, so that's one product. And the other one is... Um, a platform called Growing Up NYC, which is um, basically another digital um, space for uh, parents, basically, um, currently in, actually has been for kids um, pre-K or actually from birth to uh, I believe um, age 12 to just understand what type of services and events um, and resources are out there for their children. Um, and we literally two days ago just launched a companion version called Generation NYC, which is more um, facing for um, a, a teen kind of young adult audience to um, give them access to events and trips and other types of um, mostly like mental health services. Um, so they can get easy access to that. Um, all these products were made using actually service uh, design and design thinking tactics. So we didn't just build these just because we felt like they'd be good. We actually worked with youth and we worked with social workers, stakeholders in the government to build all of these things out properly. Um, and, you know, even for the Generation NYC platform, um, interviewed over 100 youth to make sure we were getting the content that they really wanted to see in it. So those are two big products that basically we have um, ownership of. Um, And then there's the service and studio, which I'm the um, deputy for. And we literally just launched uh, this studio publicly um, about three weeks ago. along with a like tools and tactics uh, toolkit which is geared towards like supporting government agencies who are really trying to understand how might they infuse design design thinking um, methodologies and um, practices into um, their into their work how do they you know and because I think that's and one of the things we're realizing is you know um, a lot of the government agencies, they have great, they have, there's some amazing ideas out there and, um, but they just need a lot of support just trying to understand how do they talk to the stakeholders that are involved in their work? How do they empower them? How do they leverage them to just be part of the process as they build out an idea, whether it becomes a product or, um, a, you know, turns into something that helps push policy. So very interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it, I, I just <laughs> yeah. have one follow up question, and that is, how do these services and products? How are they available? What do they look like? Are they are they websites? Are they interactive tools? Are they apps? What? How do you how do you? Um, yeah. Configure them. Yeah. Sure. So Access NYC and Growing Up NYC, I can send you the websites, but um, th- those are actually website URLs, so you can go online and and look at them right now if you like um and so those are two online platforms and they're also mobile um platforms as well so those are digital um the service design studio is the part that's like digital or or paper-based i guess is the toolkit um 
So that that's actually um, nyc.gov slash service design. If you enter through that website, you can get an overview of what the toolkit contains, and that will lead you to a webpage that has downloadable templates and kind of helps walk you through these different types of resources. And so that's available online. Sounds from what you're describing that this echoes beautifully the kinds of principles and ideas and really passion that you were expressing in our conversation a few months ago about social innovation. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, absolutely. I um, first want, you know, I can get on this team for even a short period of time already feel that like I am now really in an organization that has from, you know, leadership on high, very invested in the value of design um, inside government agency, um, who really believes that they're not just an appendix um, or just a you know a side you know nice to have um, to help products and ideas be better, but that we're actually an integral part of um, the way we do our work, and and that it's very necessary for us to be there. Um, I've never. This is this is probably one of the first times I've ever really like been um, so in such a uh, hugely supported environment like this. And to what do we owe, in your estimation, this enlightened point of view? I think you know, for for all the pioneers who have really pushed um, why design is good in the social space um, for so long now, um, it's starting to come you know, come alive. I think, you know, me being someone who from over a decade ago had always been interested in thinking about how design can be used for social change, for social impact, for social justice. Um, um, it, it had been a lot about trying to just prove our worth a lot of times. Um, it had been a lot about saying, you know, we can make nice design for you if, if you'll let us in the door and then, you know, trying to squeeze in further and, and show what else uh, designers were capable of. And now I'm starting to feel like that bottleneck is starting to, um, you know, widen and it's becoming a lot smoother for um, designers to be accepted in this space and also just valued for more than just, oh, you guys make beautiful things, but actually you, you guys have an amazing way of thinking about things, about organizing and simplifying and also not forgetting that at the end of the day, the people that use the things that we're about to make. And at the end, it's so much more meaningful and everybody's so much more invested. And, and as a result, the products that we've had a hand in, they're more sustainable, you know? Well, to you and all the um, pioneers that come before you um, carrying the flag, it's, it's, um, it's great to see this come to fruition and that this day has arrived. Yeah, where yeah. It's exciting and, and, it's exciting because ultimately it's very meaningful to people's lives. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, 
please visit our website at artcenter.edu. Thanks for listening.